Well, this morning, I have the task of taking what normally is, for me, a 45-minute sermon and trying as much to be um, thorough in our examination of Scripture and at the same time honor the time that needs to be coming after this for the examination of Michael. So we are going to start at Acts chapter 20 right now. And... uh, those of you who are Missio Dayers, regular family members, uh, I apologize if it's shorter than the normal. I know it's going to break your heart. Um, you're heartbroken. Michael will fill up the rest of the time with words of wisdom. And uh, to keep me on task, just so you know, I don't normally do this. Um, if I don't do it, I will keep on going and going. I am setting an alarm up here. I know it feels kind of odd for me, uh, but it's one of those things, so don't be uh, alarmed if you hear kind of, or me freaking out. So Acts 20, we are going to be starting, uh, our text that we are going to be looking at is specifically 29, Acts 20, 29 through 32, but I want to give us a little bit of uh, context, context is king, so go back to verse 17, uh, page 929, if you're using our uh, provided Bibles that are in the pews. Hear the word of the Lord. Now from Miletus, he sent, that being Paul, sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me, though... through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and to the, Gent- uh, the Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, not as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to the whole flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. This is the word of the Lord. 
as you know, maybe from your own personal experience, maybe from watching news feeds or whatever, we live in a very tolerant age where even in the church, good feelings take precedence over solid doctrine. Good feelings trump solid doctrine. If, you're, if you ever dare question somebody else's teaching and wonder whether it is actually biblically orthodox, you are going to be la- labeled potentially as a heresy hunter. You could be, even worse, you could be labeled as a fundamentalist if you ever question somebody else's beliefs. About 10 years ago, uh, Christianity Today ran a, a news article titled Hunting for Heresy. It told about how there were prominent evangelical leaders and prov- prominent evangelical authors who were, had become kind of under fire because of some of their books. Even uh, the two people were uh, Karen Burton Maines and Tony Campalo. Tony Campalo is maybe a name that some of you have heard. Karen Burton Hayes, maybe you haven't heard of. Maines was, uh, she was known for some of her kind of weird psychology and introspective nonsense that had really nothing to do with biblical Christianity, but she is kind of in this strange stream of Christianity that some have kind of brought her into. And Tony Campalo caught a lot of flack for urging the church to come over, overcome its homophobia and try to work to stop discrimination that denies homosexuals their civil rights. He also said that many Christians well, I, I could keep on going. Tony Campolo was starting to move outside of the stream of Orthodox Christianity. And in spite of that fact, both Maine's and Campolo's writings, at the very least, called for biblical critique. At the very least, biblical critique. But the flavor of the news article was that those who were criticizing them were a handful of self-appointed judges carrying out a witch hunt. Quote, The implication is that they were not acting with the love of Christ, especially if we are calling into question the teaching from professing evangelicals that may be false. But on the contrary, Charles Simeon said this, to warn men of their danger is the kindest office of love. To warn men of their danger is the kindest office of love. Of love. If we, as we've seen here, if false teachers are like savage wolves that do not spare the flock, verse 29, then we are certainly not loving God's people, God's church, if we fail to warn people about the specific false teachers or doctrines that may destroy their souls. So Paul calls the Ephesian elders together and says, listen, I want you to come here to Miletus Because there is something that I have got to convey to you. And it is critical for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the church, for the sake of the mission here in Asia. It is critical that you hear this. There are false teachers. They're going to come from outside and they're going to come from within, twisting things. And I need to alert you of this. And he gives an antidote to false teaching. Namely, to stay centered on God and the word of his grace. So it's a very appropriate section that we find ourselves this morning in, in Acts. 
as we're looking to examine Michael. The office of elder is critical for the, the safety and the health and the mission of the church. So here's, here's our theme this morning. Our theme is this. Elders must guard the flock by tenderly warning against false teachers. Did you hear that? Tenderly warning against false teachers and staying centered on God and the word of his grace. First point. Elders must guard the flock. Must guard the flock by tenderly warning against false teachers. To do this task requires at least four things of the elders. First, to warn against false teachers. Elders must be doctrinally knowledgeable. You must know to spot a false teacher. An elder must know what constitutes sound doctrine and what goes outside permissible lines. They must be doctrinally sound. He must know which truths are essential for the Christian faith and which issues allow room for disagreement among true believers of Jesus Christ. To do this, an elder must have some knowledge of the great doctrinal controversies that have been debated, been debated and resolved through church councils all the way down throughout the centuries. Church history is important. So often we kind of live in this nice little church bubble and just say, ah, whatever works for us today. But forgetting that for centuries the church has debated and wrestled and struggled. Church history is key. Ecclesiastes says there is nothing new under the sun, right? So we shouldn't be surprised that we're struggling with these things. And where do we look? We look at Scripture, but we also look at history and see how has the church struggled through these things. We also should know that there are core doctrines where there can be no room for tolerance. These include the inspiration and authority and inerrancy of Scripture. The triune nature of God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three distinct but yet one. The person and work of Jesus Christ, including his absolute deity, his sinless humanity, his substitutionary death on the cross, his bodily resurrection, his actual bodily resurrection, and ascension and his coming again, his second coming. And then we can, we have to die on the hill of the gospel. That we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We cannot give an inch on these traits or compromise. We will be compromising the Christian faith. There's other areas that are important. And in fact, they affect our, the spiritual health of believers. But they're not essential. These would include one's view of God's sovereign grace and salvation, the issue of baptism, Bible prophecy, the charismatic gifts of the Spirit. These are doctrines that are very well worth debating, but we should not label those who disagree with us as heretics or false teachers unless they insist on being dangerously unbiblical in these areas. 
The point is that elders must have a handle on biblical and theological issues so they can spot false teachers. Secondly, to warn against false teachers, the, the elder must be alert, must be alert to the insidious connection between heresy and sin. Paul alludes to the faith, the sinfulness of the heretics by calling them savage wolves, savage wolves that will not spare the flock. They will speak perverse things, twisting things out of context or, or taking something that is true and stretching it to an unbiblical nature. And behind every false teaching is a selfish motive. A selfish motive to draw disciples to them or they want to gain a following for themselves and not for Christ. Maybe the behind motive is a desire to have and to elevate themselves. Thus pride is the root of almost every heresy. False teachers are not humbled in their heart before the majesty of God and the holiness of his character. And Paul warns elders the danger of heresy does not just come from outside the church. Even from among themselves, he says. Men would arise speaking perverse things and drawing away disciples after them. Paul is not just warning the ignorant and the untaught. He's warning them that he has personally admonished them for three years, inside and out, inside and out. For three years I was with you, and you know how I lived among you. This means if we think that we are not vulnerable to the danger of false teaching, we are ultimately the most vulnerable because we do not understand even the perversity of our own heart. Broken, sinful, pride-filled people. Being a wolf is a matter of heart, not just an outward appearance. That's why Jesus even warned about wolves that come in sheep's clothing. It's an issue of the heart. Paul calls them angels of light, disguised as servants of righteousness. And then he adds, whose end will be according to their deeds. There is judgment for them. Their evil deeds will expose them for who, they're, who they are. False teachers who are out for personal gain and personal glory and not for the glory of Christ. In his book, The Cruelty of Heresy, C. Fitzsimmons Allison writes this, We are susceptible to heretical teachings because in one form or another, they nurture and reflect the way we would have it be rather than the way God has provided, which is infinitely better for us. False teachers come alongside and rub you on the back and say, this is so much better. This is so much better. You be you. You struggle with sexual sin? You be you. That is who God has created. You struggle with alcohol? You know what? God has, God has given you this gift. And there should be liberty. And ultimately, that is leaning towards heresy and bringing people into destruction. 
False teachers always have a motive to, to have, to be gaining followers for them, their own self, for their own, to further their own self-love. But those that follow them, the motive may be that they just don't like what the Bible teaches about God or what the Bible teaches about sin. Perhaps they want it in, an excuse to indulge in their favorite sweet sin. So they reject sound doctrine and embrace teaching that allow them to continue on in their own sin. Do we see that in the American church today? Absolutely. The rise of welcoming and affirming churches. What is it doing? It is embracing sin that God so clearly in Scripture says, no, 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 no. For your good, stay away. Cling to the cross. Find your wholeness in me. Additionally, to warn against false teachers, elders must keep in mind the destructive results of false teaching. False teachers do not spare the flock. What people believe has consequences. What you believe and practice has consequences. There's this picture of that. There is a wounded and devastated flock with many sheep killed as the, wo the, the wolf ravages upon them, just feeds on them. And what do wolves usually do? They usually go after those who are already wounded, especially those who are straying from the flock. In his book, A Shepherd's Look at Psalm 23, Philip Keller says that he heard of two dogs that killed 292 sheep in a single night of unbridled slaughter. One morning at dawn, he found nine of his choicest ewes, all going to lamb, laying dead after a cougar attacked the night, the flock in the night. From that night on, Philip Keller slept with a loaded rifle and a flashlight near his bed. At the least sound, he would leap from bed and dash out into the night and protect his sheep. That is the picture of the job of an elder. The job of a pastor is to protect the flock because they know the consequences. They are constantly protecting and caring and shepherding and leading and guiding and encouraging and keeping people on track. Come, stay, no, stay close. Come, no, no, stay, stay here. Stay here. This is for your sake and the good of the kingdom. Stay together. That is the job of an elder. So we have got to remember that heresy is cruel. Heresy is cruel. Additionally, to warn against false teachers, elders must clothe themselves with warnings of love. We live in a culture where it's almost unacceptable to question people's beliefs, right? It, it, we need to be tolerant and, and loving and just accepting. And Paul points these elders to his own example of faithfully admonishing them with tears during the time that he had with them. Admonish points, points to correction. Paul had the courage to point these men where they were wrong and point to them toward a more 
thorough submission to Christ. And, but he admonished them with tears. Tears. Showing compassion and concern for these people. A pastor and elder loves the flock. Loves the church. I love Missio Dei Church. Nathan loves Missio Dei Church. Mike loves Missio Dei Church. And out of that love for the church, we have deep concerns and we will admonish and correct and redirect us. Paul does not mean that he's always literally weeping here. But instead, his whole ministry was something more than a cold and heartless exhibition of the truth. He had a heart for his people. Secondly, second major task is an elder must guard the flock by staying centered on God and his word of grace. In taking leave of these men, Paul commends them to God and the word of his grace, which was is able to build them up and give them an inheritance among those who are sanctified, those who are saved. God and his word of grace will keep the elders from falling, themselves falling into false teaching. And by implication, they will keep the flock focused on God and his word of grace. And the flock will be kept sound in their faith. So elders have to guard the flock by staying centered on God himself. Allison states this, faithfulness to correct doctrine and loyalty to creeds, faithfulness to correct doctrine and loyalty to creeds is not the same thing as trust in the God whom the creeds describe. We learn that about 30 years later, the church of Ephesus actually fell into the trap of dead orthodoxy. In Revelations 2, 2 and 4, Jesus indicts the church of Ephesus and says, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance that you cannot tolerate evil men. You hear the orthodoxy? And you, you put to test those who call themselves apostles and they are not. And you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary, but this I have against you. What was it they had, he had against him? You have forgotten. You have left your, your first love. Keeping your eyes focused on God is critical. It's possible for us to be theologically correct and to be diligent to reprove and correct false teachers and to guard the flock from error, but at the same time lose our first heartfelt love for Jesus Christ and the gospel. It's possible for us to be a pillar in this society of orthodoxy and correct thinking. But if we have lost our love for Jesus Christ, we have lost it all. The point of studying theology is not to be able to set everyone straight with correct doctrine. The point is to encounter the living God who has revealed himself in his word, and to have our hearts properly humbled by his majesty. 
That is why we study Scripture. As our eyes are open to the glories of Scripture and God's design for salvation, we are humbled by His majesty. It's not for the purpose of whacking people upside the head with our theological correctness and our bats. It is to humble ourselves. Every elder should study theology so that he can know God in a deeper, more intimate way. We must read and study all of God's word so that we do not get humanly warped, a humanly warped view of God. If we camp on our favorite passages, we will get out of balance. That's why Paul says, listen, I I did not shrink back from teaching you the the whole counsel of God. I didn't shrink back from teaching you anything that was profitable. I, I taught you everything. God is loving, but he's also fearfully holy and just. Don't forget that. God is holy and fearfully just, but he is also loving God. He is absolutely sovereign over all things, and yet he holds us accountable for our choices. He can use evil to accomplish his sovereign will. And yet, he himself is separate from evil. He dwells in unapproachable light, and yet he invites us to draw us near to his throne through the blood of Jesus Christ to receive grace for our needs. Staying centered on God as revealed in his word, you will not fall into false doctrine. Secondly, the elders also have got to guard the flock by staying centered on God's word of grace. By the word of grace, Paul is referring first to the gospel, but then beyond to the whole written word of God. The word is a word of grace to every sinner. Hear that? This These words are words of grace to every sinner. Those who have not yet come to Christ and those who are in Christ. These are words of grace to every sinner. And it begins with the story of Adam and Eve in the garden and how they sinned and plunged the entire human race into sin under God's righteous judgment. But even in that story, there's a word of grace. Genesis 3.16, I love how it's in there. Genesis 3.16, along with John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Genesis 3.16, the the word of grace is that from the woman's seed there would be one who would bruise the serpent's head. That's Jesus Christ coming to abolish the work of the devil. The narrative goes on to tell God's gracious promise to Abraham that from his seed one would come who would bless all the nations of the earth. It keeps on going on as the New Testament makes it clear. Jesus is the seed of Abraham. God sent his own son to bear just penalty that we deserve for all of our sin. His sacrificial death is freely applied to every sinner who trusts in him apart from any merit and any works. Thus, the main message of the Bible is a word of God's grace. That's the story of the scripture. 
Most doctrinal errors stem from a misunderstanding or a deliberate perversion of God's free grace. Any system of righteousness through human effort or human work glorifies man and feeds human pride. Therefore, Satan is always, always, always injecting such false teachings into the church. But the doctrine of God's free grace glorifies him and him alone and robs us of any ground for boasting. The elders must understand, personally live by, and consistently teach God's word of grace. Elders must guard themselves first. Guard themselves first to make sure that they are living daily. Living daily by God's sanctifying grace. And then they must guard the flock by leading all that profess to know Jesus Christ into a daily walk where they are experiencing His sanctifying grace. That's the work of an elder. Many in our day say that doctrine is not important. Or even worse, some will say that doctrine is harmful. It's polarizing, it's dividing, it's experience that we seek. I just want to experience with Jesus. But experience that is not based on sound doctrine is not a godly experience at all. Years ago, a seminary professor told his class at the beginning of the semester that they would work together on one major project during that semester. They would move systematically through the New Testament to, get, to categorize every area of truth and determine how many times each area is addressed. Their goal was to find what one thing is emphasized more than any other in the New Testament. When I started reading this, uh, this, this illustration, I'm going, well, I know it would be, you know, God's love, love, right? Because that's, that's what we've been told, love is the biggest thing throughout all scripture. When they completed the project, they were amazed to see that the warning against false doctrine is emphasized more than any other thing. Even more than love, unity, and experience. Apparently, God thinks that it matters greatly what you believe. Charles Spurgeon, in the heat of what's called the downgrade controversy, when liberal theology was starting to be tolerated by the Baptist Union, wrote this. Those who do away with Christian doctrine are, whether they are aware of it or not, the worst enemies of Christian living. The godliness of Puritanism will not survive the sound doctrine of Puritanism. The coals of orthodoxy are necessary to the fire of piety. The coals of orthodoxy are necessary 
to the fires of piety or right living. The author goes on, uh, who cites this, goes on to point out how Spurgeon realized that a decline in vital godliness, decline in vital godliness would result from the departure of the doctrines of the depravity of a sinner. along with the atoning sacrifice of Christ and the absolute necessity of regeneration, of becoming alive in Christ and the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. It's deeply connected. You depreciate doctrine, ungodliness comes at an all-time high. There's a balance. Sound doctrine spoken in love will result in godly living and it's the balance that we must keep so Nathan Michael I'm preaching this to myself as well guard yourself first and then guard the flock by tenderly warning against false teachers and staying centered, staying centered on God and the gospel of grace. Amen.